Good morning. Wow, what a pleasure to be here. So if you noticed, I'm not Blake Switzer. I don't have the hair for it. Uh, but uh, my name is Dave Dryden. I actually get to serve as one of your elders here. And both Blake and Stephen are on a beach somewhere. They claim their toes are in the sand, and they're going to be watching me online. So I don't know if that's true, but uh, we uh, hopefully uh, can, can rejoice that they can have a break. i got to tell you guys, they've been working incredibly hard. Uh, we're a little bit short-staffed, and they've been putting in a lot of overtime, so it's neat that they can get away this week and uh, have a little rest and relaxation. So I would just encourage that you be praying for them this week, that God would just uh, give them some new energy, some, some needed rest, and some uh, excitement about some of the things that are coming. Uh, I do think, though, when Blake asked me to preach this morning, I think it was like, all right, who can I go down the list? And it was like, no, 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 no. Everybody was telling him no, and then finally it came to me, and I'm like, okay. And he's like, oh, crud, you know, Dave, Dave's going <laughs> to preach this morning. So as you're going to find out today, I am not a preacher. I'm a, I'm a finance guy by trade, uh, but uh, by God's grace, I think he's given me a word this morning that I'm going to share with you. Uh, so we're actually having a summer of psalms, and so uh, Blake said, uh, all right, I need you to preach, but you've got to find something in psalms to preach about. So... Wow, what do you do? So you read through all the Psalms, right? And so, uh, actually, uh, uh, I've, I'm going to preach today out of Psalm 95. Judd read it earlier, uh, so I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to just touch on a few things there. I've titled this message a heart warning, because there is a warning in Psalm 95 that's very, very important for us to heed. Psalm 95 is a psalm. It's attributed to David. It's a psalm of worship. David goes through and gives this incredible picture of how we're to worship God, uh, and, have, and it's, it really needs to be this genuine worship. He says, come let us sing, let us shout aloud. When was the last time we actually shouted in our worship service? So, interesting. Come let us uh, bef come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with worship and song. He then describes how great our God is and how he created everything in the world. Verse 6 tells us to come down and bow down and worship him and kneel before our maker. So it's this incredible picture of worship. But then in verse, the latter part of verse 7, first part he says we're sheep under his care. But then the latter part of verse 7, he actually gives us the start of a, of a warning. It's this transition. It's kind of this abrupt change. And he says, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. In fact, it's such a stark warning to us that it's actually repeated in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And this picture of a hardened heart just captured me when I was looking through different psalms. And I said, hmm, because the first thing I had to ask is, do I have a hardened heart? And it got me really doing more self-reflection about even things that are going on in my life. But this is a plea. It's a plea in Scripture that's, again, ratified in the New Testament to not let your hearts get hardened. Uh, so it actually says that we can't hear God's voice with a hardened heart. So I'll just ask, are you hearing God's voice lately? Are you not hearing God's voice? Maybe it's because of a hardened heart. We're going to touch on that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to come as, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just ask that you would bless our time today. Uh, Lord, empty me of myself, speak through me, and, and hopefully allow my words to be uh, able to touch people here and truly give some 
uh, just some good revelation that you would have us learn today. In your name we pray. Amen. So a little bit about me, uh, first of all, because who doesn't want to talk about themselves, right? Um, so i got to tell you, I love flying. I love airplanes. I have since I was a kid. Uh, model airplanes, flying airplanes. It was awesome. I saw Top Gun when I was 16. And maybe that struck a, uh, an excitement about flying at an early age. And yes, I have seen the latest Top Gun, and it was awesome. Uh, I will tell you, I, you know, the plane's taking off from the aircraft carrier and landing. Oh, my gosh, it's exciting. Amy liked the football scene. So, you know, Maverick has a little bit for everybody in there if you haven't seen it yet. Um, so uh, something for everybody. But uh, great film. Uh, but anyway, I love to fly. I, I learned to fly about 10 years ago. Uh, Amy gave me a little introductory flight lesson, and I came home enrolled in flight school. Uh, and she thought, I just thought you were just going to go up and fly around. And so, uh, but I, I went to flight school. I ended up getting my uh, private pilot certificate. Then I got my instrument rating. Then I got my complex and performance endorsements. Then I went on and got my multi-engine. Uh, a few years ago, I actually got type rated to fly jets. I even have my commercial flying license now. So I love flying. Oh, thank you. So I love flying. So I can't use an opportunity like this to tell you guys things without giving you an airplane story. So I wanted to go ahead and share an airplane story with you today. Uh, I'm going to talk about a guy named Abraham Wald, W-A-L-D, Abraham Wald. He was born in 1902 in Klausenberg. Uh, he was a mathematician almost from the start. He had a talent for numbers, and he was quickly recognized for his skill in math. He was admitted to study math at the University of Vienna. He later immigrated to the U.S., and during World War II, most of the war he spent in New York at the Statistical Research Group, the SRG. So it was out of Columbia. Um, and uh, so this SRG, it was a classified program that used mathematicians and statisticians to help figure out strategies around the war effort. Okay, so the SRG, it was the most extraordinary group of mathematicians and statisticians, and Abraham Wald was usually one of the smartest guys in the room. So, here's the question. You don't want your planes to get shot down by enemy fighters, so you armor them. But armor makes the plane heavier. If planes are too heavy, they are less maneuverable, use more fuel. If planes aren't armored enough, then that's a problem. So somewhere in between, there's this optimum point of not, a, not too much armor because it makes the planes too heavy or not enough armor that makes the planes vulnerable. So that's what the Navy brought to the SRG, the Statistical Resource Group, uh, and they were supposed to figure out what that optimum point was. So the military, again, they came to the SRG and they brought some data that they thought would be helpful. And so they brought pictures back of American planes that had engagements over Europe. So these planes that came back that were shot up uh, they brought pictures back, but they found that the bullet holes weren't uniformly spread over the airplane. They were in certain areas. So I've got a picture that I wanted to show you. So uh, this is what they brought to this SRG, and they said, uh, th we need to armor planes, and this is where the planes are most vulnerable. So the officers saw an opportunity for efficiency. You can get the same protection with less armor if you concentrate the armor where there's the greatest need, where the planes are getting hit the most. And so they figured out that the bullet holes were where we needed to put extra armor. So that's what they came. They just needed to know how much. So the Navy thought what it, and what it, the Navy thought is that when they analyzed where the airplane was suffering the most damage, 
What they were actually doing is, suffer, is showing where the airplane could suffer the most damage and still get back because the ones that got back didn't suffer a catastrophic failure. So Adam, or Abraham Wald said, where were all the places on the planes that got shot? Where were all the missing holes? And so uh, it was interesting. They were looking, the Navy officials were only looking at those planes that survived. They weren't looking at all of the planes. So the armor, said Wald, doesn't go where the bullet holes are. It goes where the bullet holes aren't, the engines. So let's see the next picture, and you can see this is where he actually told them this is where we need to armor more of the planes. So Wald's insight was simply to ask where are the missing holes, the ones that would have been all over the engine. If the damage had been spread all over the plane, we would have a better sampling, but they were only looking at the planes that made it, that came back. The reason that planes were coming back with fewer hits to the engine is that the planes that got hit in the engines weren't coming back at all. So there were a large number of planes that they figured they can come back looking like Swiss cheese here, and that's actually okay. This is where they can actually hit, you know, suffer the most damage and still make it. So again, the solution isn't to place the armor where the bullet holes are, it's to place it where the bullet holes aren't. Wald's recommendations were quickly put into effect and were still being used by the Navy and the Air Force through both the Korean and the Vietnam War. So, to a mathematician, the structure underlying the bullet hole problem, it's a phenomenon called survivorship bias. It arises again and again, but once you notice it, once you're aware of it, you can start to see this pattern in all different kinds of things. And so, Wald was familiar with it, so he was able to easily recognize it. But... Navy officials weren't because they weren't looking in the right spot. So the solution seems simple when you see it, right? So it, it makes sense now that you know that's where the bullet holes are, are you know, are where we need to have extra armor where those bullet holes aren't. But they, again, they couldn't see it. And I believe that happens with us in our Christian walk. I think we end up finding things in our life that need to be fixed and we need to work on. But there may be things that are going on in our life that we don't know about that we don't see. And sometimes it's just an awareness. And once you're made aware of it, you can become more uh, attuned to being able to, to work on it and, and fix it and, and pray about it. But uh, sometimes we just don't even know it. And so we're just limited. Why? Well, we got struggles, we got challenges, we got fears, we got anxieties, things like that. It, it really can, can kind of keep us from seeing where we need to put this armor. In fact, Psalm 95 gives us this warning of having a hardened heart and not being able to hear the Lord. And I believe sometimes as Christians, we have this hardened heart and it prevents us from being able to see where we need to put this armor. So a hardened heart, I mean, we, you can find a hardened heart in both Christians and non-Christians. And so, you know, everyone has this risk of having a hardened heart. We just don't recognize it. Uh, we can take our hardened heart to school. We can bring it home to our families. We can take it to work. We can even bring a hardened heart to church and not even know it. So an unbeliever, though, it might be a little bit easier to spot a hardened heart in an unbeliever. So if you don't know the Lord and you haven't given yourself and submitted yourself to him, just maybe ask yourself if you have a hardened heart. But it's a little bit easier on a, for a non-believer to see this. A great example to this is if you look at the story of Pharaoh in Exodus. It's, a, it's an interesting picture because all throughout the story it talks about Pharaoh having a hardened heart. He was unreceptive to God's word. Um, he didn't obey God. It was interesting. 
He had all kinds of opportunities to change. He had physical pain put upon him, and he still didn't change because of a hardened heart. He had incredible loss, and he still didn't change because of a hardened heart. If you read this story, it's actually interesting. There's a time where he actually um, basically apologizes and confesses his sin, but, it doesn't sh- but he doesn't change his behavior because of a hardened heart. There's one point where he asked Moses to pray for him, and he still didn't change because of a hardened heart. His, uh, his key magicians actually said all of these plagues, it's the finger of God. They were even telling him that this was of God. He didn't change because of a hardened heart. Uh, he blamed everybody else. He didn't take responsibility. A hardened heart in a non-believer usually shows up in not being receptive to things of God. So if you're here today and you haven't accepted the Lord and submitted to him, just ask yourself if perhaps maybe you have a hardened heart. Uh, and the nice thing is today you can fix that. All you have to do is submit yourself to the Lord, and he says he will change your heart. But now for, let's talk to believers, Christians. So I'm talking to you, Christians. We can have a hardened heart and not even realize it. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. This is in the modern English version. It says, because they look, but they do not see, and they listen, but they do not hear, neither do they understand. By hearing, you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing, you will see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. He's basically, Jesus himself is saying, because of a calloused, hardened heart, you're going to see but not perceive. You're going to hear but not understand. A great example to this is actually uh, Jesus with his disciples. Now again, in Mark 6, Jesus' disciples, the closest people to Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. So the 12 disciples in Mark 6, Jesus sends them out. And it's this incredible picture. So get this. They're brand new disciples, and Jesus says, you go out and you do things. And it says they did miracles. They preached. People got saved. People got healed. All of this, not at Jesus' fingertips, at the disciples' fingertips. So the disciples did all of this good work. And then it says they were so excited that they came back and it says they, they sat with Jesus and got to tell him all that they did. Can you just picture this? I mean, they're all excited. They come back to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I healed somebody. Hey, Jesus, uh, I, you, know, I, you know, I preach. You know, it's just crazy to think about how excited they were. But there was an interesting phrase in verse 31 of Mark 6. It says, they didn't even have a chance to eat. So get this. They were so busy They were so on fire doing good things for the Lord. They got tired. They were hungry. They were fatigued. So Jesus said, let's get away to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus knew they needed some rest. But it says a crowd followed them, and Jesus had compassion on them, so he began to teach them. Now remember, the disciples still hadn't eaten. They still hadn't rested. And then Jesus decides to preach a long long all-day sermon. And at the end of this sermon, The disciples came to Jesus and said, the people are hungry. What did Jesus tell them to do? He said, you feed them. So remember, Jesus blessed the the bread and the loaves that the kid had, and the disciples started handing out the food. The miracle happened right at the fingertips of the disciples. I mean, it was happening right then and there. Um, At the end, y'all remember a little Bible trivia? How many baskets of fish and loaves were left over? 12. How many disciples were there? 12. All right, so get the picture. Each disciple has a basket, right? 
So every, every disciple, each of the disciples have a basket. Uh, and then at verse 45, immediately, not sometime after, immediately Jesus told his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side. And then he was going to go pray. And we all know the story. The winds came up in the, in the boat. The, the disciples were on the lake. They were struggling. Jesus sees them. He tells them to go to the other side. He's walking on the water. The disciples see him. They were afraid. They thought he was a ghost. And I can just see Jesus kind of casually getting into the boat. And it says that Jesus got into the boat. Wind calmed down. And then the disciples, it says, were amazed. Verse 51 and 52 says the disciples were completely amazed. But then it says something interesting. It says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Even the disciples suffered a hardened heart after doing all of these incredible good things, doing miracles, letting literally miracles happen at their fingertips. They suffered from a hardened heart. In fact, it gets worse. A few chapters over in chapter 8, uh, this is when Jesus feeds the 4,000. And you remember after the 4,000, there were seven baskets of loaves left over. And then, same type of a story, Jesus says, let's go, and they get into the boat. This time, kind of funny, the disciples forgot to bring the bread. So they had seven baskets of bread left over and somehow forgot it. And then they're on the boat, and Jesus brings up bread. And they look around, and they're like, oh, crud. We forgot the bread. And so can you imagine the finger pointing that went on? Hey, Peter, you were supposed to bring the bread. No, Mark, you know, Matthew, you were supposed to bring. It must have been crazy. They literally were griping about bringing the bread, and Jesus asked them, are your hearts still hardened? And then he says, you have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. Even the disciples, closest men to Jesus, suffered a hardened heart, didn't even see miracles, didn't understand what was happening right at their fingertips. So let me give you some quick kind of warning signs. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, but what I want you to do is just, as we go through them, just ask yourself, might this apply to me? Remember this, the analogy of the, or the story of, of the armor for the airplane? Didn't know where it needed to go. Maybe one of these applies to you. So as we go through them, again, we're going to go through them kind of quick, but just ask yourselves, do any of these apply to me? So these are some signs of a soft or of a hardened heart that needs to be softened. That's the first one. Are you feeling hopelessness or isolation? When we start feeling hopelessness, could be a sign that maybe sin has gotten to our hearts, hardened our hearts. Isolation. Some people try to hide from God. They turn away from church. They turn away from believers, from brothers and sisters. Are you, are you hiding? Are you isolating yourself? Do you feel hopeless? Cain did this. Cain isolated himself from God. Uh, and so there's picture after picture of people that when they, get, when they get into a bad spot, they just go hide. Are you hiding today? Maybe you need a softened heart. The next one, do you worry or have excessive fear? When our hearts become hardened, we stop feeling God's affirmation. Worry and anxiety starts to creep in. Uh, we lose our faith and trust in God. We no longer feel that goodness, that love, that peace that's there. We don't hear God's soft little reassuring voice when we have a hardened heart. Number three, do you have an insensitivity or an indifference to others? Isaiah 6.10 says their hearts are dull and their ears are dim, meaning that sometimes we have a dim set of eyes or a, a dull set of ears with respect to other people that are in need. 
Listen to this. A soft heart will be compassionate and sensitive to others. A hard heart only looks towards self-interest. Interesting. Uh, how many, a little more Bible trivia. How many commandments are there? Not ten, eleven. Jesus gave us a new one in the New Testament. What, remember what that 11th commandment was? It was to love one another. Jesus gave us that commandment. It's not easy to do, though, if you have a hard heart. So just ask, are you shutting yourself down to God, to others, to church? Have you become kind of apathetic in your faith? This is where you just ought to pray to God and be honest. He can take it. One thing that uh, helps with indifference, uh, with insensitivity, is just practice those spiritual disciplines. You know, just staying strong and, you know, praying and giving and serving and worshiping. Those are just important when you don't feel like it. It's important to fight through and, and continue to do those spiritual disciplines. The next one, do you have dry devotional time or maybe a lack of understanding of Scripture? Have you lost joy in your quiet time? Heard this recently, that if you don't have joy in your quiet time, maybe God's not there. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. So if you don't have joy in your quiet time, maybe God's not there. Do you have, under, uh, do you have a hard time understanding Scripture? The disciples did. It's a clear example of even people that are serving the Lord, how they can not understand things because of a hardened heart. So just pray, ask forgiveness, ask to, for God to uncover any of those spots that uh, may be hardened on your heart. The next one, do you struggle with sinful patterns or habitual sins? Without a healthy sensitivity towards God, we start walking in ways that God would not have us walk. So do you struggle with a habitual sin? It's likely a sign of a hardened heart. It's a big deal. Are you stubborn to God's word? A soft heart walks in obedience to the lordship of Jesus, but a hardened heart would rather have its own way. Do you know what you're supposed to be doing and just choosing not to do it? Stubbornness could be a hardened heart. The next one, are you prideful? Pride's always a sign of a hard heart. This is where we want to trust ourselves more than God. This is interesting because God specifically in the Bible says he hates pride. So pride's refusing God's correction. It's refusing other people's wisdom. Uh, pride's one of the few sins that we may not even know about. I heard it said once that, you know, like a lot of the sins we know about, like if you're having adultery, if you're in an adulterous relationship, you know it. But you can actually have a sin of pride and not know it. If you're not certain about it, ask God. He knows your heart. The next one, are you struggling with bitterness, resentment, maybe a refusal to forgive? Let's just face it. People hurt us. We get hurt sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. People hurt us. What that can do is put us on edge. It can give us more bad inner self-talk. Uh, self-talk can be incredibly dangerous with bitterness, with resentment. The Bible tells us this. In Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, it says, Get rid of all bitterness. Forgive. Luke 17, 3 through 4, it says, Watch yourself. Forgive. So we're told, make sure that we don't have unforgiveness. It can really lead to a, to a hardened heart, which then could lead to not hearing the Lord. The next one, are you refusing to serve or be ministered to? Did you know that we can actually miss Jesus' miracles by not serving or allowing ourselves to be ministered to? It was interesting. There's an interesting picture of this in Mark 3. Uh, Jesus was in the synagogue. It was on a Sabbath. He was 
going to, to heal a lame man. And the man and the, and the Pharisees were actually watching to see, is Jesus going to heal this guy? Jesus healed him, but then it says Jesus was angry and deeply distressed about their stubborn hearts. It says Jesus was angry because of that stubborn heart. So can a hardened heart change? Yeah, you just have to ask for it. have to repent, allow God to soften your heart. Only Jesus can be a true heart change. Uh, I read this description about Christians with a hard heart, so I wanted to, to read this to you. Hardening of the heart may be even stronger for the one who knows Jesus Christ. This type of hardening can occur when one who has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit decides to reject his lordship and return to their old self. The Christian will live a life in between the non-saved and the saved, basically in a spiritual limbo. Their hardened heart causes them to be unable to relate to those in the world because they know and understand and see the consequences of sin. But because they're not able to relate to brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ because of condemnation and guilt. So they're kind of in between. Unfortunately, all of us can relate to living life in between because we've all been there. This struggle defines the decisive battle of who is the Lord of our soul. In the midst of trying to maintain control, in the midst of being pulled in multiple directions, in the midst of all the noise, confusion, pain, and darkness, is a desire deep within our heart to be right with God, to be more like Him and less like ourselves, and to be free from that which binds our soul. Softening and healing of a hardened heart begins when we've reached the point when we've had enough, when the pain exceeds the pleasure, when the crack occurs in the armor that's protecting our heart, allowing a sliver of light via the Holy Spirit to, uh, to enter and illuminate His truth. This is when our heart begins to weaken from it the internal pressure of regret and sorrow. This is when God's grace acts as a solvent to dissolve the hardened layers and soften the scars. This is when we experience the miraculous influence and power of God's grace on our hearts, broken and contrite transformation. Broken is defined as a damaged, altered, or disrupted by change. Contrite, though, is a feeling or showing of sorrow and remorse. But a broken and contrite heart is more, much more. A broken and contrite heart occurs when we see and understand the depravity of our sin, when we despise who we are, are repulsed by what we've done, accepted responsibility for our behavior, realize the uselessness of relying on our own flawed, self-centered decisions, we trust God, we become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. This is when our pride melts into humility, we humbly kneel before the mercy of God and lordship of Jesus Christ, and he can change us from within. So, if you're a believer, there is a cure for hardness of heart. It's humbling ourselves and repenting. Repenting isn't just feeling sorry for what we've done. It's about that U-turn, turning away from our sin. It's going deeply into God's Word. The Bible renews our minds and brings thoughts and conformities with His heart. We're talking about Psalms all summer. Psalms describes over and over about delighting in the law of the Lord. And then finally, we need to obey what we hear and what we read in, our, in God's Word. When we hear that still, small voice, remember, as our heart starts to soften, it's going to make us more susceptible to being able to hear that small, still voice of the Lord. And then we need to be obedient and do what it says. So I'm going to wrap up with this quick story. The apostle at one point was a dis disappointed and jaded disciple on the beach of Galilee. He had denied Jesus in the high priest's courtyard, not once, but three times. And I'm sure he was remembering 
Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Jesus himself said, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's betraying of Jesus wasn't a small thing, and he knew it. So for a moment, Peter gave up. He potentially had a risk of having a hardened heart. He was suffering from this potential of having a hardened heart. He was mad at himself, and he actually told his disciples, I'm, I'm basically done. I'm going fishing. It's a fantastic story. He turned away from the Lord. He turned away from helping people, decided to go fishing. And it was actually on the boat that Jesus visited him on the shore. Suddenly, miraculously, very grace-filled, he restored Peter. Peter entered into his ministry with a new heart again, and Jesus used Peter to be the rock of his church. He did it for Peter, and he can do it for you. So as the worship team comes back up, I'm going to be available in the Next Step Center. But uh, let's go ahead and just uh, close, and we're going to pray that God would speak to us uh, as we go through our response time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to, again, to gather. And I just pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. If there's any areas of a hardened heart, I just ask that you would illuminate those to us and uh, make it so clear that we can repent, that we can bring those before you and have a softened heart. We thank you for that. In your Lord's name, we pray. Amen.